Happy Sabbath. Uh, it's good to be here on this very first Sabbath of the year 2020. And uh, it seems like just yesterday that it was the first Sabbath of 2019. And a whole year has gone by. It is one year closer to the second coming of Jesus, isn't it? Yes. So that's the greatest event, the major event we're all looking forward to. Uh, all everything else that happens on this world uh, may be indications that the end is coming, may be just reminders that the end will come, but the great event we all look forward to is the actual second coming of Jesus Christ to this world. Not as a helpless babe this time, not as... Uh, as someone who came to redeem us from our sins, but he's coming now as the king. He's coming now as the Lord of Lords, a Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's coming now to uh, establish for once and for all God's kingdom of glory on this planet. And this will be the capital of the universe. For ages to come, this planet that has been marred, has been uh, tainted by sin, has had much of its beauty destroyed because of sin. This planet will be, will be restored and Jesus will have his throne right here upon earth from where he will continue to command the entire universe. Yes, that should be good news. Maybe it was not too convincing in my presentation, but that's what the Bible says. You don't have to go by my word. Trust that the Bible says that Jesus will come and he will have his throne right here upon this earth. Yes, that's true. Amen. We look forward to that. There is, uh, we've been talking about signs quite, uh, quite often recently, if you have noticed. Uh, we talked in the beginning of December, I talked about our personal devotion and relationship with God and making the Bible the center of our, uh, of our study and beginning the day with the Bible, with reading the Bible, reading a few verses, reading a chapter, reading a few chapters, uh, studying a specific theme if you want, but just being inspired by God's Word. And if you think you don't have time for that, your time is short, uh, I challenge you to start by giving five minutes, if you can, to Bible reading, to Bible study. And soon we'll see that five minutes were not enough because you wanted to, to uh, go through the entire chapter or a number of verses and we'll give 10, 15, and soon enough you'll be giving quality time to your Bible study. Even the Sabbath school quarterly that you receive every quarter here at church is, is a good guide, right? It's not the Bible, but it's a guide that helps you study the Bible. Uh, last month, we also talked about God's greatest gift uh, for the salvation of the human being, sending Jesus, who came as man, born of a woman, born, in according, to the lo born according to the law. And he came and he was born to die. That was his intent. That was the plan from the beginning. And we also talked about signs of revival. 
And on the last Sabbath of the month of December, last Sabbath of the year, Brother Leonardo spoke about signs of reformation, signs of reform. Now with all this talking and preaching about signs today, we are going to talk about signs again, but about signs that are not really observable according to the words of Jesus himself. Now there is a story, and this must be a legend, uh, I'm not sure this is a true story, but a story that as I say, if you don't want to think, you don't want to think it's a legend, it's probably a parable, that uh, an ancient king, he loved to play chess, and as we know, chess is a very time-consuming uh, game, but he wanted to play chess, and he loved to play chess, and he invited people to play with him. And it is said that a certain uh, traveler, a sage, traveling sage, was uh, going around his country and he heard of it and he invited this man to come and play with him. So the very wise man came and sat with him and they started to play. And uh, the king said to him, well, before we finish the game, I want to promise you that whatever, if you, if you win the game, whatever you ask, I'm going to grant you whatever your request may be. And the sage said, okay, that's fine. And he continued to play for many, many hours. And finally, it so happened that the, the king lost the game. The sage won the game. And so the king was not pleased, but he had to keep his word. And he turned to the man and said, okay, so whatever you ask me, I'm going to give you. And the sage said, I have a very simple request. I request, my request is that a grain of rice be placed on the first square of the chessboard. And then on the next square, you double the amount you have on the previous square. So one, one grain of rice will be placed on the first square. On the second square, how many grains? Two. And then on the third, four. And then so on and so forth. And the king thought, well, that's a very simple request. That's not difficult. So he ordered someone bring a bag of rice, and they started to do that. Now, lo and behold, even though it seemed like a modest request, by the 21st, by the 21st square, more than 1 million grains of rice would be required. By the 31st square, the total would be, would be go, going over 1 billion. And that with more than half of the chessboard still left to go. So it became apparent that they would the king would never be able to fulfill the sage's request. I think this story tells us two things. One is that uh, kings may have power and uh, governors and presidents and prime ministers. But at the end of the day, they're all human. There is only one who is really wise. There is only one who is really, really, really the source of wisdom. And that is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The other thing this lesson, this story tells us, the other lesson this story teaches us, is that small things, incremental things, over time they make a big difference. And so sometimes you think, well, uh, I'm going to read this Bible text and it's going to be just one text. But if you do that every day, if you spend 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes if it be, and you do that every day over time, 
you're going to see that that will make a difference in your life. But the only way for you to make sure that that is true, the only way for you to really uh, taste, you have to do and you have to go and do it to taste and see because it's not going to, it may not going to happen overnight, but it's going to happen over a period of time. And so by spending time with God every day, by spending time with God every day over a period of time, then you're going to see changes in your life. Now the kingdom of God, speaking of kings and speaking of the kingdom of God, and that's what the text of today uh, talks about. Many people say, many people uh, have an opinion about what the kingdom of God is. Other people have an opinion about what the kingdom of God is not. But we know that the Gospels <clears throat> present, <clears throat> present a good picture of what the kingdom of God is. Especially in the books of Matthew and Luke. Matthew refers to the kingdom of God quite often as the kingdom of heaven. And then Luke refers to this kingdom as the kingdom of God. Now they talk quite often about this and what the kingdom of God is. And, and this is even in the words of Jesus. Jesus talks about what the kingdom is and the characteristics of the kingdom and everything. And I'm quite sure that each and every one of you here today looks forward to being part of the kingdom of God. Not only now, but forever and ever. And there have been and there will be signs of the second coming of Jesus. Signs of the establishment of the kingdom of glory. These signs we can learn from Bible prophecy. Right now in this uh, quarter we are studying the book of Daniel. Which is a book filled with uh, uh, prophecy and predictions about things that happened already in the past. And think that will, things that will still happen in the future. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation have uh, a substantial amount of apocalyptic prophecy. And from that prophecy, from the study of prophecy, we can learn about the signs referring to the coming of Jesus. But today's message, in today's message, I'm going to focus, even though I'm going to talk briefly about the signs of the coming of Jesus, I'm going to talk about non-observable signs. I'm going to talk about another aspect of the kingdom that refers not to the visible signs you can see or you have seen <clears throat> happen in history, but signs that are not visible. <clears throat> now, I consider this aspect of the kingdom also an important aspect. I consider this aspect of the kingdom to be as important as the other one. I believe it's important because Jesus took time to talk about it. If it were not important, he wouldn't even care talking about it. And so in verse 20 of chapter 17 of the book of Luke, we see that the Pharisees come around and they ask Jesus what? What do they ask Jesus? They inquire what? When the kingdom of God would come. So the question has to do with the when. The question does not have to do with the how, but it has to do with the when. When would the kingdom come? And both the question of the Pharisees, both the question and Jesus' answer, shows us that this had to do with the timing of the establishment 
of the kingdom of God. But they were asking for the when. They were actually asking, tells us what signs can we look at? Tells us what signs can we observe that will indicate to us that this is the time when the kingdom is coming? That was the question. That was a a loaded question. They wanted to to have word of signs, of visible signs, signs they could observe that would tell them when the kingdom would be established. Now, in response, Jesus says, the kingdom of God comes with no observation. The kingdom of God comes with no visible signs. The kingdom of God comes with no ways in which you can remark it. But what kind of observation, what kind of observation is Jesus talking about? He says, the kingdom does not come with observation. What kind of observation? Well, let me take you to Luke chapter 6 and verse 7. In the same book of Luke, chapter 6 and verse 7, Jesus Jesus is here once again surrounded by scribes and Pharisee and verse 7 of Luke 6 says the scribes and Pharisees watched them closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him this watched closely is the same comes from the same root as observation that Jesus used there in chapter 17 so Jesus says the kingdom of God will not come will not come with something that you can watch closely and make sure that you have all the the points to connect and make sure that by your observation that's the main point of Jesus's answer make sure that by your observation you'll be masters and will hold the, the answer and the keys to when the second coming will happen. So Jesus is saying, it's not going to be your property, the when the kingdom will come. It's not by observation. You're not going to own it. It's going to happen, but in a different way. You have to look at different signs. That's the first thing Jesus is saying. And this word observation, this word, uh, this expression, watch closely, is the same one we find in Luke chapter 14. And there are other verses in the Bible, but I'm showing you two only. In Luke chapter 14 and verse 1, Jesus uh, went to have a meal with the Pharisees and with the rulers of Israel. And he goes into the house of one of them. And the Bible says that it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. So you know when someone is, is looking at you and watching you closely to see if you'll make any, any missteps, make, see if you make any mistakes, see if you're going to do something that according to their standards is wrong. Because they were watching Jesus closely to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath as he had done. And many times, unfortunately, people are going to be looking at you to see if according to their standards, 
you are doing something that is not right. And the Bible says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. And so Jesus says, it's not going to be by your observation. It's not going to be by your watching me closely that you're going to see the signs of the kingdom. Rather, what does Jesus say in the sequence? What does Jesus say after that? He says in verse 20, going back to Luke 17, 20, uh, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. 21, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So it's not going to be by your watching me closely. It's not going to be by your keeping your eyes on me that you will own the, the establishment of the kingdom. But rather, the kingdom comes with no observation. And indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, there's been a, a substantial debate whether, uh, as to what this expression means. Did Jesus say that the kingdom of God is within you in the sense that it is in your heart? Or did Jesus say, as some other versions, Bible versions presented, did Jesus mean uh, the kingdom of God is in your midst? The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is right here among you. Well, this second interpretation would be preferable. Because how would Jesus look to begin with? This is one of the evidences. There, are, uh, there may be others. But how would Jesus look at the Pharisees who were uh, contesting his ministry? The Pharisees who were sitting doubt about the legitimacy of Jesus as a son of God. The Pharisees who were attacking him all the time. The Pharisees who were condemning him for things that were not even wrong. And they look at Jesus and say, tell us when the kingdom will come. How would Jesus look at them and say, the kingdom is in your heart. That doesn't really make sense. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And so it is not going to be by observation. But you have to understand the principles of the kingdom. To be able to realize that the kingdom is right in your midst. And so, this is the aspect of the kingdom that I'd like to focus today. The one that refers to things that maybe are non-observable. Maybe we are, we are going to be talking about things that are not uh, catastrophic. Maybe you're going to be th talking about things that are not climactic. But things that happen in ways that they are not really observed. They are not easily noticed. Let me ask you this. And I believe, like I said, I believe this is an important aspect of the kingdom of God, an important principle of the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this. What you think is, is important out of these questions I'm going to ask you? Is it important that Jesus establish his kingdom when he comes the second time? Is that something important? I think it is, isn't it? Is it important that Jesus do come the second time? Is it important? It is absolutely necessary. That's something we're looking forward to. Is it any important that Jesus, that God will restore the perfect conditions of this world? The conditions that existed before sin. Is it any important, of any importance, that God restores things the way they were before? Yes or no? 
It is important. Is it important that God restore things in a way that there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death? Is that any important? Yes, it is. Let me ask you this. Is it important that uh, medical science continue to strive to find treatment for diseases we have today? Is it important that the kingdom of grace be preached right now? That we go out and proclaim God's grace for anyone who feels disgraceful in this life? Is it important that I, as a child of God, I, as a Christian, do something to improve the conditions of life of those around me? Is it important? And so these things are also important. As we look forward to the coming of Jesus, there is the second aspect of the kingdom that also is concerning and that we should look at it with much care and attention. Because for those who are looking for outward signs of an earthly kingdom, the kingdom of God would prove to be a disappointment when Jesus came the first time. Those who were expecting Jesus to increase his geographic dominion, the kingdom of God would never have an appearance of a kingdom then. Those who were looking for Jesus to establish his throne, well, well, guess what? He never had a throne. He never had a royal palace. He never had luxurious dwelling. He never had a signet ring as kings had in his time. He never had a royal army. Never had an opulent carriage to take him around. In fact, speaking of himself, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we must be careful in our journey as Christians. We must be careful not to prejudge people. We must be careful not to look for signs or characteristics that are not even an evidence of anything to begin with. The true Christian is not necessarily those, the, the, uh, the true Christian is not necessarily the one whose household is never visited by any sort of illness. That's not necessarily a sign of true Christianity. The true followers of Christ are not necessarily those who are the wealthiest in the church. The kingdom of God is not necessarily represented, or I would even say is not at all represented by the church with the biggest buildings. The church with the largest amount of real estate. The church which has the most lavishly adorned temples. That's not necessarily a representation of God's kingdom. Because Jesus said the kingdom does not come with observation. And I might spend, I could spend hours, months, years observing, monitoring someone else's life. And that's not going to make me or the other person, person a citizen of the kingdom in and of itself. It's not by observation. But that's not to say that there is not going to be evidence of transformation and evidence of change of character in the life of the believer. There are a couple of passages I want to go, I want you to go with me, if you will. 
One of them is Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. The Bible says that uh, a scribe came around to reason with Jesus. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, the Bible says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? So this is a scene where a scribe is is seeing Jesus discussing with others about uh, Bible truths, about truths of the kingdom. And he analyzes Jesus and he thinks, well, he's answering well. According to my criteria, he's answering well. And so he looks at Jesus and asks, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, verse 32, Well said, teacher, you have spoken truth, for there is one God and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbors as oneself. And I'll stop here, because all that the scribe has done so far is to quote the words of Jesus, right? And he's appreciating what Jesus said, and he's saying, you have answered well, I, I admire you, you're doing well. And he quotes everything that Jesus said, but then he goes forward and he says something else. On top of loving your neighbor and loving God with all your heart and loving your labor, uh, sorry, loving your neighbor as oneself, this is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God, but." After that, no one dared ask Jesus any questions. <clears throat> and so what the scribe was saying here, and Jesus confirmed that this was true, this was not, uh, was uh, placing him not far from the kingdom, is that more than anything that could be visible, one should love God with all their heart. One should love God with all their soul and understanding, with all their strength. And love the neighbor as oneself. Now how can you tell whether or not someone loves the Lord? Can you really tell? Can you really look at someone and by observation say this person loves the Lord? Can you do that? I think you are free to do that. But you are not necessarily going to, going to be right on your observation. And uh, I know that we may say, well, by their fruits, they shall, be, they shall be known, they shall be recognized. But no one can really read someone else's heart. No one can really know how close the person is in their heart, in their mind to God. But this is the essence of God's law, that you love the Lord with all your understanding. 
that you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In other words, that you love the Lord with your whole being. But going beyond that, you love your neighbor as yourself. Because this is more worthy, this has more value than any burnt offering, than any sacrifice that you might come and offer on the altar. Now today, when Jesus died on the cross, the the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And today, animal sacrifices are no longer needed because the Lamb of God died once and for all. But we still, we still come and we make sacrifices. And sometimes we think that those sacrifices will somehow commend us to the kingdom of heaven. And then we make sacrifices for others. We make sacrifices even for the church. We make sacrifices and we we do good deeds. And we think that those good deeds will commend us, will buy us a place in the kingdom of God. But God is saying, Jesus is saying, love the Lord with all your whole, with all your being. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. And these things will produce results that I agree will be observable. But to begin with, at the bottom of it all, we must have this deep connection and love for God the Father for God the Son, for God the Holy Spirit, and we must love our neighbors as we love ourselves. There is another text I want you to bring with me to, is in the book of John, in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. The Gospel of John chapter 3, and beginning in verse 1. And this morning, uh, Sister Gannett was talking about this one-to-one encounters, right? And that God, Jesus is really interested in this. As you go and you talk to someone on a personal level, and she gave the example of the Samaritan woman, and I believe this is another example. When Nicodemus came to have this interview with Jesus, and he came at broad light, is that correct? No, he came to Jesus at night. And in verse 1 we see that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. See that he's talking about signs here? He's referring to the miracles that Jesus did. He's referring to the wonders that Jesus did was making was doing and he says no one can perform those signs unless God is with him Jesus answered and said to him most assuredly I say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God and so Jesus is saying you want to be a part of the kingdom you must be born again it it has nothing to do with outward signs it has nothing to do with your wealth It has nothing to do with how you dress up to come to church. It has nothing to do with how much power you have. It has nothing to do with how much verses you have memorized from the Bible. If that has not affected a change in your character. Because you must be born again. 
That's the one condition for you to be part of the kingdom. You must be born again. You must accept Jesus as your Savior and go through the process of being born again. But Nicodemus in verse 4, he says to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is what? Flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is? Spirit. And now, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from, and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, in the same chapter later on, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Is it in the same chapter or the next chapter? It's, uh, it's in the... It's in the next chapter, right? It's in the next chapter. And in the next chapter, Jesus says that the, God is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth, right? And many of us Seventh-day Adventists, we, have, uh, uh, we feel very comfortable saying, I came to the truth in 1984. I came to the truth in 2005. I came to the truth these many years ago. But uh, sometimes we don't feel comfortable saying, I came to the Spirit in 1984. I came, but Jesus is saying that the Lord is looking for, for worshipers that worship Him in Spirit and truth. Or not even, uh, we don't feel comfortable saying, I came to the truth and to the Spirit in 2005, for example. But why is this? When Jesus is saying, you must be born again. And you must be born of the Spirit if you want to be part of of the kingdom of God. Because you have been born in the flesh once. But now you must be born of water and the spirit. It's not just by water when you are immersed during baptism. But you are being baptized in water and in the spirit. So you can be able to enter the kingdom of God. And then in verse 8 Jesus says. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from. And where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Jesus is not denying the effects and the reality of the, the wind. Jesus is not saying, well, because you can't tell where the wind comes from or where it's going to. The wind is not a reality. No, the wind is a reality. The, the truth is that the wind does blow. It does blow. The truth is that the Spirit does move. The Spirit really works. You, cannot, you may not be able to predict where the wind is going to. You may not be able to predict the actions of the Holy Spirit. But the truth is, the Spirit moves. And the Spirit moves in the life of the born-again Christian. And how does the Spirit move? Well, you can't predict it. You can't tell where it's coming from, where it's going to, but the Spirit works. And this is one of the non-observable signs of the kingdom building. 
God is looking for people who will be solidly established in the truth. But people who will be filled with the Holy Spirit. People who will take actions that may seem a little unorthodox. But they're still solidly biblical. They're still solidly grounded in Bible truth. But yet, they will be new. They will be different. Because they're being moved by the Holy Spirit. Was Jesus' ministry orthodox or unorthodox? Well, if you consider orthodox from the perspective of Bible truth, uh, he was absolutely orthodox. But his methods, his mission, his vision, his approach was different from all the tradition of the time. And so we need to be able to look at signs and look at characteristics of kingdom building that are different. Maybe they will be different from what you have been used to. Because, like I said, you may spend hours, days, weeks, months, years observing people around you and trying to judge whether or not they're fitting into your standards. Fitting to your standards. But the truth is that Jesus is looking for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And those who are moved by the Spirit will be changed from, insi- from the inside out. And uh, many times, those signs will not be observable at first sight. But as I finish here, Jesus did not stop there. Let's go back to, uh, to Luke chapter 17. Jesus did not stop there. Jesus continued to talk to the Pharisees and of course to the disciples as well. And uh, going back to chapter 17, now in verse uh, 23. They will say to you, look here and look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also will the Son of Man be in His day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus says, yes, there will be very much observable signs related to the second coming. To begin with, as the lightning shines from one side of the heaven, the sky to the other side, you will see the Son of Man coming like that. Every eye shall see Him, right? That's what Revelation says. But then He goes on to say, as it was in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Until the flood came, Noah entered the ark, the flood came, and they were all lost. They were all destroyed. It goes on to compare the situation, the condition of society at the time of his second coming to the days of Lot as well. To the time when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And he says in verses 28 to 30, Likewise as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, 
It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, Jesus is not condemning marriage, is he? When he says they married, they were given in marriage, and, uh, and the flood came, and uh, fire and brimstone rained from heaven. He's not condemning marriage because marriage is sacred according to the Bible. Jesus is not condemning work. He's not condemning business transactions per se. He's not condemning the planting and the building, healthy food and drink in appropriate measure. He's not condemning the innocent pleasures of life. The problem is not with the food. The problem is not with planting. The problem was not with building or with marriage and family. The problem exists when those institutions, those things are corrupted. The problem exists when they are no longer seen from the perspective of eternal life. Jesus said in another passage, These things you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And so looking at the signs for the coming of Jesus is important. As it is important being born again. As it is essential being born again. Because I tell you, Jesus will come no matter what. Because it's promised in the Bible. Now, whether or not we are prepared for that, that's the big question you and I have to answer before God. What is more important, let me ask you. What is more important, to brush your teeth daily or to seek the help of a dentist when your tooth is aching? Which one is more important? Well, one might say if you brush your teeth daily faithfully, uh, you never have toothaches. Well, that may be true. That may not necessarily be true because sometimes other problems may happen, problems that have to do with your bones or whatever. But both things are important. Now, if your tooth is aching, you're not going to say, no, I'm going to be faithful and brush my teeth three times a day for the rest of my life. I don't need to go see the dentist, right? What is more important, to, to clean your house or to fix a crack in the basement when water leaks in? Which one is more important? I guess both are, aren't they? What is more important, to perform regular maintenance on your vehicle or to replace a flat tire that just blew when you were driving on the road? I believe both are important. Now, one might argue that some things are more urgent than others. Under certain circumstances, I would agree, but all of them are important. And so, brothers and sisters, as we close here, it is all right to carry on the normal things of life. In Jesus' words, he never said, you might as well stop doing business transactions. You might as well stop working. He never said that. He said that the problem was that those people were doing that on a regular basis and they were not paying attention to their spiritual growth. They were not looking from, uh, to the kingdom from the right perspective. That's where the problem was. And so while we look to the coming of Jesus, while we look forward to the day when we'll see that small cloud just about the size of a man's hand, a man's fist, 
appearing in the sky. While we look for that, look forward to that, we continue to live life. And we continue to live life in a way that is moved and is guided by the Holy Spirit. Because that's the only way we can be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. While we do the things of life, while we carry on the normal things of life, while we enjoy the innocent pleasures of life, let's remember that this is just a part of our life. This is not what our life is all about. This is not what you are. This is not who you are. And while we are doing these things, let's not forget that we have been redeemed. Let's not forget that we have been redeemed for a purpose. And so, if you're willing to be, to be transformed in a way that maybe it's not observable at first sight. If you're willing to start this year a new chapter of your life. Well, the formula is not different from what we've been preaching here in the last few Sabbaths. Take time for your personal devotion. Take time to, to prayer. Take time to read the word. Take time to meditate upon spiritual things. Take time to talk to other people about spiritual things. Take time to learn from God's word. Take time to teach God's word. And by teaching it, you learn more of it yourself. This is my desire for you this year. This is my desire that you and I will, will judge other people less. That ideally will not judge other people, but will be concerned with examining ourselves. We'll be concerned with being born again. Well, you might say, Pastor, I'm born again. I'm a born again Christian already. I gave my life to Jesus many years ago. I gave my life to Jesus last year. I was baptized in this church 50 years ago. And that's all good. That's all okay. But I'm challenged, challenging you to be born again every day. I'm challenging you to renew your commitment. I'm challenging you to keep up with your commitment. To keep up with your vows when you said, Lord, I give you my life and I want you to be the Lord of my life forever. You need to feed that. You need to feed on God's word for that to be kept on a daily basis. And if you do that, and if I do that, this church is going to be totally, completely different. We'll no longer be blown by every sort of doctrine. We'll no longer be blown by things that people say. We'll no longer be blown by things we hear that makes us doubt, that makes us question whether or not you are in the truth. Because the Lord has called you from darkness to His marvelous light for a purpose. And we have to build upon the, the heritage we have received. We have to build upon the truths we have received. And continue to grow from glory to glory. From grace to grace. From light to light. And if you do that. And if I do that. This church will be a light in this community. So bright. So bright. That whether you are a Samaritan woman. Who comes at midday to draw water from the from the well or whether you are a Nicodemus who comes at night the light from this church will be bright will be shining so brightly 
that they will all come. They will all want to know what is it about your relationship with God that makes you different. But this is only going to happen if you and I commit to Bible study, to prayer, and to communion with the Lord and with one another. May God bless us for a very successful 2020. Success is not measured by wealth. It's not measured by possessions. It will be measured by how effective the gospel is in my life and in your life. May God bless us.